You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hi everyone, it's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse Podcast. I'm just popping in your ears briefly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all over the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend that tends to focus on Indigenous texts and Subversive Seminary during the week which focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group who are currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the Vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We record these episodes in community and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate by being part of our Patreon community. If you're one of our patrons, you can listen to extended conversations with extra questions included such as this. We saw millions of people come out for Black Lives Matter and millions of people come out for the Women's March too in 2017, you know, or at least hundreds of thousands in LA alone, you know, in 2017. But um, a coordinated strategy, right, that says, this is what we want and you have until this date to give it to us. (laughs) And if you don't, there are going to be no exports out of L.A. Harbor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's that kind it's building that kind of capacity that I think that we're we're missing. I think that a lot of people think, well, if you go out to the streets and you chant defund the police enough, it'll happen like magic. And then M&Ms will fall from the sky. <laughs> <laughs> So we need we need a broad, strategic, disruptive, sustained, nonviolent campaign, right? That uses a diversity of tactics and keeps the pressure on the right targets until those victories are won. That's what I think. So that's just a little example of what you'll get if you're part of our Patreon community. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you follow, rate, and review this episode in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode. So Honoré Henry is a singer-songwriter, soon-to-be author, and anti-racist organiser. But he's kindly let us uh, bring a bio that we've written for him um, into play as well to add to the humility of his minimalism. Um, He's a place where R&B is reweaved with Jamaican Mento. Serbian Otpor, Mandela's Dignity, King's post-liberal, post-Carmichael militancy, the so fresh and so clean creativity of Atlanta's southern hip-hop, although larger Atlanta is where um, you're coming from, just outside, and the provocative oppression-ending nonviolence of the Nazarene. Um, Our Inverse community is so glad to have you with us, dear brother, and uh, we have so many friends in in common, Um, so welcome home. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, both of you. Andre, uh, is there a particular passage you want to um, play with today as we explore your story? Um, yeah, we talked about Exodus 3-7, um, which I don't have pulled up on my computer, but I remember a bit of it. I don't have it all memorized, but I remember a bit of it. Um, this is when This is when God is speaking to Moses at the burning bush, and he says that, he has heard the cry of the Israelites in Egypt because of their oppressors, that he has heard their pain, he's seen their pain, and um, that he has heard their cry, and that he's going down to Egypt to wage war on the gods of Egypt and to march them out of there, out of, <laughs> out of, out of, out of bondage. That's good. Yeah, and so... Uh, our tradition is to uh, allow that to kind of, we'll just sit with that and let us, you know, let it simmer a little bit. But uh, some of what we really care about is your story um, and really how your story interacts with how we engage things like scripture. And so I'm really interested to hear, I don't think I even know what direction your answer will be to this, but when do you first remember encountering the scriptures, the Bible? these stories early moments that uh, come to mind well like my grandma my grandma started taking me to church with her when i was really young 
And so um, she went to an Assemblies of God church just a few minutes away from our home here. And um, that was when I first encountered the Bible was in uh, Sunday school. Yeah, Sunday school. I think it was probably like the flannel graph era where you yeah. had, you know, little little Jesuses <laughs> and disciples and stuff you put on the flannel graph. I see people laughing, so you know what a flannel graph is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I think those, the, those were my first encounter. And actually, the first book, the first thing I ever bought with my own money was this book in the church bookstore called Stories Jesus Told. It was an illustrated children's book of Jesus' parables. And I remember it cost $10 and I was really young. So $10 felt like a lot of money. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm never going to have $10. <laughs> I saved up like all my pennies and nickels and quarters. There was this couple at church that used to give me 50 cents every every time they saw me every Sunday. I made sure that like I saw them every Sunday and just saved up all these coins so I could get this little book of stories Jesus told. So that was like, I think my first encounter with, uh, with scripture that I remember. <clears throat> yeah. It's beautiful. Um, I, I was surprised to hear that, um, though I've heard you a number of times describe Atlanta, Atlanta itself isn't quite your home. Um, the the place that you narrate um, uh, as your home, I found really fascinating. Our, our next question, Andre, is always, um, was your experience of the Bible something that was liberative or oppressive? But I'm going to ask, um, in the context of um, the geographical location that you grew up in and um, the topography of oppression that is overlaid in that place, um, would you have named your experience of the scriptures as something that was liberative or oppressive, or is it more complicated than that? I think it is more complicated than that, because when we talk about the topography of oppression, I was... I was raised in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and Stone Mountain. For those of you who are not who don't who may not know, Stone Mountain is it's technically not a mountain. It's it's a big rock. Um, it's literally not how mountains are made. So it's a it's a huge rock, and on that that very site, which is at the edge of town here, it's literally like four miles away from my home right now, and history is a little bit murky here so it was either early in the morning thanksgiving day or it was later that night 1915 a methodist preacher and 15 other white men some of them from some of them confederate veterans others of them members of the original ku klux klan which had been defunct for decades they had they hadn't seen the ku klux klan for decades and part of that has to do with the fact that when the cotton market collapsed in 1930-ish, like the need for white supremacist violence to keep black people in the South also like kind of waned, like, cause that was the whole purpose, right? So people, people who like to talk about racial violence, I know I'm digressing a bit, but it'll be worth it. <laughs> the, um, Not at all, mate, this is what we do, you go for it. <laughs> but the, um, you know, people always like, they talk about senseless violence, but racial violence always has a logic to it, right? And the logic of, clan violence at the time was to keep intimidate black people into staying in the south so they could continue to be the cheap labor force of the south so when the cotton market collapses like the clan is kind of like well you know we don't really have anything for them to you know like we don't we don't really have anything to force them to do right now so they they kind of and that's one of the reasons like this white supremacist violence declines so actually a graph of this in doug mcadams book called Political Process and the Development of Black Insurgency Between 1930 and 1970. That is the entire title, by the way. <laughs> There's a graph of this that shows you, like, th- there's one line that represents the cotton market, and there's another line, line that represents white supremacist violence, and they match. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, anyway... No one's seen the clan in the years, so you got some OGs from the from the original clan that are climbing Stone Mountain with these other Confederate veterans and this Methodist preacher that's leading them, and they burn a cross, which was the first time this has ever happened in real life. The first time we saw a cross on fire was in D.W. Griffith's 1915 film Don't. *Birth of a Nation*. Mm-hmm. This is this is life imitating art in this moment. So. 
Methodist preacher man lights this cross on fire, puts a Bible down at the foot of that cross. And I can't remember what was the other thing, but it was a Bible, oh, a sword. It's a Bible, sword, burning cross. Wow. And declares himself the grand, whatever they call themselves, the grand imperial wizard of the new Ku Klux Klan. And they pledge allegiance to the Invisible Empire. So that site is at the edge of town where I live and where I grew up. And their Stone Mountain Park was there, right? So this is neo-Confederate theme park um, with the largest Confederate monument in the world carved into the side of the rock that has Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson all on the top of their favorite favorite horses. What a lot of people don't know about that monument, though, is that first off, it was the idea of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And wow. the woman who came up with the idea, yeah, it was a white woman that came up with the idea for this monument. So her idea was for it to be a huge carving of Robert E. Lee leading a procession of Klansmen in their robes. That was the idea for the carving. And the guy who did the carving, who I'm pretty sure is the same guy who came up with the Mount Rushmore carving, um, he was like, no, 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 we're not going to do Robert E. Lee. We're going to do all the generals, <laughs> right? So, so, so he put he, he put all the Confederate, he put the three most famous Confederates in, in the carving. So anyway, that's at the edge of town. And what you have to know is that like, if you were to go to Stone Mountain Park, there's no mention of any of this. Right? There's there's no talk about how this carving was supposed to be actual Klansmen in their robes. It was the idea of Klan sympathizers. The Ku Klux Klan started here. We never heard that growing up. I went to Stone Mountain with my family every 4th of July and watched them with, do the laser show where they outline these Confederate generals and make them come back to life and start marching to I wish I was in Dixie. You know what I mean? Whoa. Um, so growing up in the shadow of Confederate Mount Rushmore... You know, amongst white evangelicals who had a Christian flag waving in the church parking lot, right? I didn't know that. Um, first off, I, I didn't know any of that history about Stone Mountain until I was an adult. And I didn't know, like, that flag waving in the church parking lot, the so called Christian flag. You know, I, I I didn't know about Christian nationalism. Is what I'm trying to get at, right? Like, mm -hmm. what those what that what that small crowd of men did at the foot of that cross in 1915 on top of Stone Mountain is totally Christian nationalism. And that symbol waving in the flag of my church parking lot, the Christian flag that I pledged allegiance to as a Royal Ranger. I don't know if any of y'all know what Royal Rangers are, um, but. Is, is that like, like Cub Scouts or yeah, something like, like that? Yeah, it's like the Assemblies of God version of the Boy Scouts. Wow. And we pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for which it stands, one something uniting all true Christians in service and in love, right? Wow. So we did that, right? So And that's, that's a part of the same tradition. Had no idea any of that was going. In spite of that, the scriptures were still a liberating thing for me because mm. I, I read that story of the Exodus and took to heart that like God doesn't like seeing people enslaved and oppressed. Right. right. Um, just as strong as the legacy of the Confederacy is in Atlanta is the legacy of the civil rights movement. You know, yeah. it's where this is where Dr. King served as a pastor, you know, um, it's, it's one of the capitals of the civil rights movement. Right. And so there's that kind of juxtaposition, like this kind of like, I don't know, contradiction, I guess, maybe, is that um, you would you, you could go hike Stone Mountain and you could go to watch the laser show and the fireworks at Stone Mountain on the 4th of July. But you also had these huge King Day celebrations and marches for Dr. King. And you could go visit the King Center and go visit his house and go visit Ebenezer Baptist Church where he taught. Um, so anyway, in spite of all that, I would say that in one way, the scriptures were very liberating in reading it and seeing like the very passage that we're talking about tonight, you know, and in another way, I guess the scriptures were kind of oppressive, too, because when you try to talk about racism in the shadow of Confederate Mount Rushmore as a child, especially, you got a lot of white evangelical adults telling you, you know, 
that God doesn't see color, basically, right? Mm. And you're a kid, so you don't really know better than you don't really know better. Like if I if I were like 36 year old Andre in nine year old Andre's body, and I could tell them like that's bullshit, (laughs) then I would have. But I I didn't. I didn't know that. So there was this whole journey of unlearning later on in my life when I encounter these same white evangelicals as an adult. I encounter these people later on in life, the same and with a different perspective of scripture. And then it's like, you know, we're battling now, right? Because I didn't realize how much scripture had, the way that I learned scripture, the way that I was formed by those people in the shadow of Confederate Mount Rushmore and in my theological studies at Southeastern University, another Assemblies of God school. Um, how much the scripture had been used to kind of keep me in line as a black person, right? And to to not speak up about systemic racism. Wow. And I think that that clash of uses of scripture, right? I mean, one liberative, one oppressive. I mean, I mean, I do think the way you described it is really powerful because I mean, so much of that, especially in the South, just the vivid imagery of two Christianities clashing with one another, two interpretations clashing with one another, right? Um, I know I've shared with uh, Jared before that I remember I was blown away when I heard C.T. Vivian describe uh, the freedom movement primarily as a clash of Christianities, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, like, I mean, in some ways it was common sense, but I mean, this was like 10 years ago when he said it, it just hit me like I never yeah. heard anybody quite say it just like that, right? And right. I think that... Um, that the liberative and the oppressive, yeah, they get so entangled in space and place. Um, yeah. And certainly um, the way that uh, you describe that happening in Atlanta is a really powerful example of that. So yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in thinking now, as you think about, you know, the ways that you have um, interacted with scripture, the ways that you've seen it, used as a weapon, the ways you've seen it used liberatively. I'm thinking about like what gifts from your own life experience help you so that when you approach it now, you like what, what helps you think about and engage and find liberative meaning out of out of these ancient scriptures? Um, I think several. I think being black, but not just not just being black, being Jamaican actually is one because so that when we talk about like the history of Christianity, a lot of times black people would be like, well, Christianity was forced on us. That's the way that we became Christians and stuff like that. And there's truth in that. You know, I'm not going to it would be dishonest for me to say otherwise. Right. But but specifically in Jamaica. <clears throat> um, so there are seven national heroes in Jamaica. And many of those heroes are people who led rebellions against the colonizers and against slaveholders and the kind of stuff. Yeah. And a few of them are pastors, <laughs> you know, um, because Christianity didn't take in Jamaica very easily among um, enslaved people, among African people. Um, and the Christianity that did take hold was more Africanized, <laughs> you know, than 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 you might than you might expect you know and even like uh for and and even the emphasis like a lot of the baptists jamaican baptists were more interested in john the baptist than they were in in jesus right um and john the baptist took on a more emphasis for them so anyway i'll just say christmas day 1861 i think it is or 1863 there's a huge slave uprising. 30,000 enslaved people on Christmas Day rebel because Samuel Sharp, you know, a Baptist preacher led them in this in this huge slave slave uprising, helped organize it. And they even used to like play these tricks on these Christian missionaries and tell them, you know, the white missionary comes in and preaches this sermon about how they need to turn the other cheek and submit to their masters and stuff. And and you know they say Hey boy, you sound good, but you know you have a funny accent, and and you know, so we just gonna stay behind and tell everybody, say, you know what, what you I say, right? So basically, you know, they're just saying like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna like, <laughs> we're gonna sit, we're gonna sit back and help everybody understand what you were talking about, the slower learners. And as soon as the white missionaries out the door, they get back to planning the revolution, right? 
Um, so I, I say that like being Jamaican in that sense is kind of a gift for me when I approach the scriptures, not saying that it's not been abused, you know, and not been weaponized against black people. But the 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 role that it has that it's played in Jamaican history has been like something that I I'm proud of my ancestors, you know, that they did that, you know, and the way that they handled it with such shrewdness. There's also on in on that same vein, I spent a good chunk of last year in Jamaica, um, visiting my sitting with my family and um, honestly just trying to see like if I can move there, you know, um, working on my citizenship and whatnot. And I got to spend time with, um, I got to spend time at uh, Bob Marley's estate. Um, they have like a, where he grew up, they've kind of turned it into a museum, right? So, and there was this guy who was leading, he gave us a tour and I can't remember his name right now, but he's an older Rastafarian man. And he would keep on just having these moments of epiphany as he was, leading us on this tour and he would just kind of climb onto this invisible soapbox and he would just start talking about you know the government or the system or whatever and he would talk about and he obviously a bob marley lyric would come to him and he would quote bob marley and stuff like that and i remember feeling really moved by the way that scripture scripture meant something to him if he had spoken in any of the churches that I'd grown up in, they'd call him a heretic. They wouldn't let him speak. They wouldn't give him the microphone, you know. But there's something about being Jamaican that remind that you just it's easier to see the lines of like the uh, the legacy of colonization there. Yeah. So like when this guy starts doing things with scripture that I know that like those white people who taught me about Jesus say that he's not allowed to do. He's like, he's breaking the rules. And it's kind of really beautiful. Like to see that, like, no, like this is how we read it. This is how, and this is how we engage with it. And it doesn't matter what any colonizer has to say about it. Right. Mm -hmm. The same thing with Patwa. Like, you know, when you're, when you're chatting Patwa, you are mangling the English language, the queen's English. Right. And they like to say, that these enslaved people spoke Patwa because they couldn't pronounce, you know, they couldn't enunciate in the Queen's English. And I don't buy that. I think that our ancestors were brilliant. And if they wanted to learn the Queen's English and to pronounce it like the Queen and all these colonizers, they could have, you know. And we know that because we're doing it now. So if we're doing it now, they could have done it then. I don't think they wanted to speak their colonizers' language. I think they invented their own language because it was convenient for them. And it allowed them to speak in front of their arrogant oppressors right in front of their faces. And while their arrogant oppressors are sitting here saying, they're so dumb, they can't speak the Queen's English. They're saying, them, them white people, them, them so stupid, them can't understand what we are saying. Right? <laughs> right? And that's what, they're, that's what they're doing right in front of them. So anyway, I think that all of that, like, that's a gift to me, <laughs> you know, as I approach scripture. Because even with the way that they talk about Babylon, and that's why at first Revelation 13 was going to be, you know, one of mine because of what John is doing in that passage. Yeah. But like when you think about the Bible as anti-imperialist protest literature. Right. That's right. And you come from, you know, a your ancestry is deep in a colonized nation, you know then I don't know, it just hits different. It just does. Not that black Americans are not because I mean, even Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture in mm -hmm. Black Power was writing about this, right? He was saying like, sure. black Americans are in a colonial settler state, right? And we're fighting colonial oppression. But we have, again, that veil that they use in Stone Mountain that they use around America where they say, Oh, no, 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 we're, we're better than that. So that's a gift. I'll wrap that up in the blackness, you know, and Jamaicanness. The, the other gift that I feel like that, you know, the lens, you know, for approaching scripture when I do is, um, I guess there are two, but I'll be brief about both of them. One is being a nonviolent, a student of nonviolent action, nonviolent struggle. I see ev like everything that I'm reading 
now when I do read scripture, I see how, um, I don't know, I just see the principles of like nonviolent struggle all throughout what I'm reading, mm-hmm. you know, even in some of the most problematic ones. I got asked to speak at a church last year. I only really speak at churches when my friends ask me to. Like if my, my like my, my pastors, my friends who are pastors, if they're like, will you speak in my church? I'm like, yes, because I like you, but not because I want to be at church. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, So... <laughs> They asked me to speak on this passage from uh, Peter. I can't remember which Peter it was, but it's the one where he's like, slaves, you know, obey your masters uh-huh. and not just the good ones, but even the bad ones. Cause you know, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, and I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, this is super problematic, but there's this whole principle in nonviolent struggle called making oppression backfire. And that is an angle that I can approach this scripture That's from. Right. That's where Andre. Yeah. It's like, is you make oppression backfire. Okay. <laughs> Go there. Take your time. Okay. I'm laughing because sometimes, or I've had a couple of times over the past year where I've had like someone who really doesn't like me because, um, you know, they tried it basically and it didn't work. You know, like some of you know, black people know what I mean by they tried it. They tried it. <laughs> Can I say the F word in this group? You be yourself. You be okay. you. All right. Well, they fucked around and they found out. That's basically what it is. Right. So, <laughs> and then they're like, oh, I don't like Andre Henry because he seems so nice and humble and quiet and, and all that kind of stuff. But then like, so I thought there weren't any boundaries and they crossed the boundary. Right. All right. So now. Now they get violent, right? And they don't understand on top of on top of like me not really being the one, I'm also a nonviolent strategist. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to let you show your ass, right? And I'm not gonna match pitch with you. And the reason why I'm not gonna match pitch pitch with you is not because you don't deserve it. You may very well deserve it. But I'm going to let you show your ass because I understand. I understand because King taught it and Gandhi taught it mm-hmm. and Tolstoy taught it and Thoreau taught it. I love that. That if you show your ass, everyone's going to watch you being violent and they're going to know who the bad guy is in this situation. And if I match pitch with you, it's going to make it confusing. <laughs> right. And then that way, your violence is going to backfire on you. Right. Yeah. So you go ahead, be your nastiest. And I'm just going to, you know, I might write you a very kind letter telling you how I understand your, your, how I understand your feelings and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you know, but I'm going to, I'm still going to stand my ground here. I don't, I'm, I'm trying not to give too much detail and I'm trying to use an example that's personal and interpersonal because sometimes the you know getting into all the societal stuff can be a bit a bit convoluted so anyway i'm reading this thing in first first peter they want me to preach on i go oh okay so i'm not gonna say that peter is right that slaves should just obey their masters but i am gonna say there's a principle here about the violence of oppressors can backfire on them when it's not returned sometimes (laughs) under certain circumstances the violence of oppressors can backfire on them when it's not returned sometimes, right? And we've seen this in the civil rights movement. That's exactly, that was exactly their strategy. It was, right. you know, they, they went to the lunch counter knowing that these white people were going to respond violently. And they wanted these white people to respond violently for the cameras so that people who were in the middle, people who considered themselves neutral, people, um, all that kind of stuff, so that they would see that and they would be mobilized into the movement. Now, what a lot of people, I just want to say as a caveat, a lot of people take that strategy and say, okay, now all black people have to act that way, even in their interpersonal dealings with with violent oppressors and stuff like that. And I just want to say that's not the point that I'm making. (laughs) Um, The oppressed get to decide whether or not they're going to turn the other cheek or they're going to throw these, they're going to throw these hands. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's up to you to decide. But what we need to know is that that option is on the table sometimes under certain circumstances to say, okay, you go ahead and be violent because that violence can backfire. 
So that lens is helpful to me in scripture. It's also helpful to me because I grew up with this very individualistic, very consumeristic, you know, version of the gospel and Christian faith that had nothing nothing to do with confronting systems of oppression. Mm-hmm. And so even to see like God in the book of Exodus acting like an organizer where Yahweh chooses a target, <laughs> figures yep. out what tactics are going to pressure that target to, to meet God, to meet Yahweh's demands. Yeah, including property destruction as yeah. a method. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Escalation, right? And yes, exactly. Escalates those tactics until that target can until the target realizes that the price of oppression is much higher than the price of liberation and meets the organ and meets the movement's demands. And to see God at, and that helped me to see God again as like the force behind liberation, right? Like, or the force behind movements, freedom movements, right? So like when people reach that point of what Doug McAdam calls cognitive liberation and they say enough is enough, right? This situation is unjust, but it's also changeable through our collective action. Like that's God on the move. I'm getting chills right now talking about it. Yeah, cones uh, the ground of liberation, right? Mm, that's right. <laughs> that's presence at work um, in the movement. That's absolutely. And one thing I did want to throw back in, um, I was going to say to you that um, my mom is actually Jamaican. Um, so my mom grew up in Jamaica. She lived there for nineteen years. So she lived in Kingston at first, and then out in the country, um, eventually. And so, Emma, which part, Saint Elizabeth? I forget the country uh, yeah i'm not sure i can't say all that i don't even know all, all right where but um but yeah so i do have i understand Drew, have you ever visited i did when i was very young but it's been mm-hmm. a very long time yeah so i think we've more. americanized my mom more than vice versa but i definitely grew up with some rice and peas and curry chicken Ooh, and yes. and all that good stuff so yeah well, my dad has a couple. Well, he has a Jamaican restaurant here in Atlanta. He had a few, but I think there was only one now. Um, so if you come through Atlanta, you got to stop by my dad's place and get Taste of Jamaica. That's the name of the place. Mm. That sounds good. We'll take sounds care good. of you. That's good. Andre, I want to return to um, uh, what you're saying about maybe I'll frame it like this. Uh, often nonviolence becomes um, a purity game. And as you mentioned, yeah. formation in a um, uh, white individualist, consumerist American Christianity, which I'm sure you're very aware is um, very much global. And you can grow up in American individualist, consumerist Christianity right here in Australia, um, not to mention elsewhere uh, around the world. Um, often talk about nonviolence becomes talk about, um, well, a- as if, uh, as if Thoreau and Gandhi um, were the primary influences on um, the freedom movement, where um, I, I remember I, I once had the incredible privilege of um, having lunch with um, Dr. James Cone and uh, Reverend Jim Lawson and them like I- explaining to me that, no, no, y- you've got to understand the spirituals and how nonviolence actually comes out of the sung experience of African-American mm-hmm. people. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Th- Thoreau wasn't a consideration. Um, uh, Tolstoy wasn't a consideration. Right. Um, it, it was um, the anti-imperial movement that was happening in India as Gandhi took on the yeah. British Raj in conversation with the context and whether it's uh, the influences of um, uh, uh, Elijah Mays or Mordecai Johnson or the, these people, um, um, Jim Lawson himself after his return to India, that these were the kind of influences that were being brought. And uh, as as I'm sure you, you use in your orientations or, or trainings, um, Jim Lawson always said, never refer to it as a training. The training is for a once-off event. Uh, this yeah. is for a, a life of struggle. That quote about nonviolence was the best game in town. It was the only game in town. Yeah. Um, coming from Diane Nash um, yeah. in the Force More Powerful video about the, the Nashville lunch counter sit-ins. Right. Um, often I find you have many people, including people um, I had the incredible privilege of running um, some workshops um, with Reverend Lawson 
And yeah. the people who rock up to these workshops, their primary interest often isn't ending oppression. Right. It's nonviolence. Yeah. And I find that incredibly troubling. Like yeah. it, it's, would you speak to a little about your own personal journey around, because um, what I heard you doing with the, the first Peter passage um, and your reference um, to Revelation, the 13th chapter, and yeah. what you're doing in Exodus is a reading that is a force more powerful to, to use Tutu's yeah. language, um, but not some like purity game about how do we restore a pristine Christianity. Can, can you yeah. talk a little bit to some of those dynamics? Well, yeah, I think that most for most people, once you start talking about nonviolence, the only thing that the only the only conversation they know of is, okay, now we're going to wag our fingers at people who are not nonviolent, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the only conversation that they know, right? And that was never the point, right, of talking about nonviolent struggle as a strategy for liberation, right? Um, So one of and, and part of that is that many people only know of some whitewashed version, whitewashed version of Dr. King's work, right? Mm. Because even Dr. King, like people need to read Dr. King. That's right. Because, analysis. Yeah. because when he talks about this, he says, Dr. King wanted to build a nonviolent army for militant, sustained, nonviolent struggle. That's and, right. and that's the way he talked about it was building a nonviolent army to confront systems of oppression. So when we talk about nonviolence now, basically it, it, it kind of just comes down to nothing. Like if you really dissect what people are talking about when they talk about nonviolence, it's like, well, well, we know we're not gonna break windows and burn things and use weapons, but we're also not gonna say anything that's, that's offensive to anyone. And like, it's just like, at the end of the day, you end up just like kind of sitting down and doing nothing, yeah. right? That's not what nonviolent struggle is about. So one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite practitioners and thinkers about nonviolence was Nelson Mandela. While he was mm-hmm. nonviolent, because we all know <laughs> Mandela said this isn't working, and, and and he embraced the armed struggle. But I, I appreciate Mandela because Mandela was the first person that I read in the genealogy of nonviolent struggle and strategy who said we adopted nonviolent struggle because we saw that it was a method that worked we want they also were watching gandhi and so this let me just yeah. back up for a second we have yeah. to also understand the civil rights movement happens within the context of a ton of decolonial struggles in the world that's right right tons of decolonial struggles happening all over the world right um that were evolving right and so the civil rights movement happens in the midst of that. We have to remember that context because yep. the black black America is looking at Gandhi's movement in, in India, but so yep. was South Africa, right? And so Mandela's looking at Gandhi and also Gandhi was in South Africa for a little bit. Okay, That's we right. have to also include that Gandhi was anti-black, right? As we talk about yep. this, let's just let's just put that on, in there. On top of other things that need to be talked about, but yeah, um, Gandhi, we're not creating heroes. We're, we're yeah. looking at examples. Yeah, yeah, Gandhi's super problematic, but also made a major contribution to the field of nonviolent struggle by right. helping us to understand strategy. Right. So anyway, I appreciated Mandela first off because Mandela was funny. Uh, just this time, he, he got he got pulled over one time, and the police are like telling him like he's going to jail, and he's like jerking around with them and stuff. And I was just like, oh, that's awesome! I want to be like that when I grow up. Um, and but also, Mandela said we adopted nonviolence because we were watching Gandhi, and it seemed to work. Right? Mm-hmm. Very practical, very pragmatic. Right? And Mandela also said though that the oppressed actually don't get to decide what strategy will liberate them. Yeah. Like the that is actually determined by how determined their oppressors are to trying to maintain and control whether or not force will will be necessary one day. And that was just a helpful perspective for me for Mandela to say that. Mm-hmm. Like you don't get to say <laughs> that nonviolence is the only way to win this, you know? So I tend to enter the conversation about nonviolence from that perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And Mandela's not the only one, but I, I like to start with Mandela because he's black. 
Um, and, and then, you know, you can go further down the line in history and come to Gene Sharp and Sergio Popovich and come Eric Chenoweth and, and all those others, right? Um, so anyway, I come in from the strategic perspective. I, when I came to understand nonviolence better through reading, you know, basically kind of a genealogy of thinkers on nonviolence and practitioners, um, I came across this work that talks about how, um, well, basically Erica Chenoweth and Maria J. Steffen's study in Why Civil Resistance Works, they yeah. studied 323 conflict situations and they found that- Talk about that 3.5. They, they talked about, first off, that um, there was a marked difference between the success rate of armed struggles and nonviolent struggles. That, that armed struggles it was, it was around like 24% success and nonviolent was around 50, right? Which is effective. Even 50 is not like great, right? Like a 50-50 chance, it feels like, oh, it's going to go either way. But you have less than a 50-50 chance by taking up arms, according to the study, 323, com 323 complex situations, right? So that was one thing. Second was um that... um. The three and a half percent rule that no oppressive regime, we're talking to violent totalitarian states could withstand the sustained nonviolent resistance of three and a half percent of the population. That was a huge one. And the third one was that those struggles that were won through nonviolence or arms, that the ones, uh, the armed struggles uh, tended to uh, yield democracies that descended into civil war within 10 years. And the nonviolent struggles, uh, the ones that the one the, dem the democracies that, that were made in their wake, usually, um, they yielded more stable democracies. And so, for me, it was about oh, the numbers, <laughs> the facts, the statistics, right, the results that made me more committed to nonviolence. Um, now, but that's 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 a different version than like that 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 research wasn't out. When Dr. King and C.T. Vivian and Annie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, that great pantheon of uh... yeah, that that research wasn't around during the civil rights movement, right? They didn't know that. <laughs> um, King came to nonviolence, and this is where that whole global context comes up. And this is also part. This also is context for for the for the disagreement between Dr. King and earlier Malcolm X, right? Is that uh -huh. they are watching. They're watching people like uh, Kwame Nkrumah and others around the world fight against British colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean, um, and they're seeing they're seeing some violent uprisings work, right? Yep. And so that's why you have Malcolm X saying in the Black Revolution speech that you win through taking up arms against your oppressor, and that's also why. He, he's also drawing from France Fanon, I believe, the Wretched yes. of the Earth. And that's why Fanon is saying that, too, is because they, they're they seeing these decolonial struggles won through the oppressed taking up arms. But what Dr. King found was a strategy that he felt that he could use with integrity as a Christian, because mm -hmm. he had these scriptures that talked about uh, loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek and all that kind of stuff. And so this brings me to a point about nonviolence that I've said on Twitter and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing about in my book and all this kind of stuff is that when you tell people, when you tell oppressed people that they can only win through either method, uh, you are, I feel like you're doing them a disservice, right? Yeah. Um, I understand why some people say the only way that you're going to be able to liberate yourselves is with blood. I understand that, you know? And look at when people tell me violence never accomplishes anything. I'm like, well, have you seen America? Like this country was built. You know, this is the nation violence hath wrought. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not saying that it's a good thing, but you can't say it accomplished nothing. That's you right. know, right? But in our situation in America with Black Americans, telling Black Americans that the only way that they're ever going to be free is if they can beat the U.S. military is discouraging. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Which is where is which is where the conversation often goes. It's like, well, the only way that we're going to be be able to win is through is through taking up arms. 
will never have will never outgun the U.S. military. The other thing is that, like, I've stu- I've been studying revolution, so I also understand that, like, even when you talk about armed struggle, you're talking about a completely different type of organization, right? Like, you don't win you you don't win armed struggles by just people, you know, picking up guns within that country. You win an armed struggle by having another country back you, which is how America won its revolution by having yeah. the French back them, right? Yeah. So who's going to back you, and why would you trust them? Because they're not going to do it out of altruism. They're going to want something too. So anyway, we can go down the line on that, right? Nonviolence is not just you know, a force more powerful. It's not just a more excellent way morally, if that's what you believe. It's also a way that people who don't have the resources to fight gun for gun and fight fire with fire or have superior firepower, it puts another method of resistance on the table that actually could work. Yeah. Right. That's where I was trying to get to through that, you know, our long walk through the woods there um, is that it puts it puts a, it puts an option on the table that could actually work right mm-hmm. and that's that's my commitment that's that's why it means so much to me that's why i'm committed to nonviolence yeah i mean and i think that's also why i don't wag my finger at people who aren't <laughs> that's right right exactly exactly yeah for me um it's precisely that point right cuz i mean so i'm someone that's been shaped i have been shaped by black theology and also anabaptist traditions but one of my frustrations with white Anabaptists is precisely the way in which they're wa- wagging their finger at folks that are not engaging in nonviolence. Um, meanwhile, they're allowing systems of violence to sustain their way of life, right? So they're literally right. living off of structural violence, police, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that that is hypocritical and it doesn't also wrestle with the actual systems in place. And so I think what you're talking about is really important because folks need to be able to think pragmatically and practically as well as thinking about their faith in terms of how do we confront and fight systems of injustice and systems that are crushing us and that are um, destroying our neighborhoods and our well-being and our communities. And so I think that's really important. Exactly what you're, I've witnessed that too, because I've also been to a workshop with Jim Lawson and it's a lot of white people just virtue signaling about how unwilling they are to hit anybody to save black lives. And I'm yep. like, I'm not impressed <laughs> with you. <Yep. laughs> um, be, because like even Gandhi says, like, if the choices are between inaction and violence, clearly violence is the superior choice. That's right. You know? And, and Gandhi's so like, clear talk of um, uh, to choose between a, a coward and a violent person, give me a violent person. Yep. Um, uh, like, and I, I loved how you framed um, like, King's desire to actually build a militant army of nonviolence because it fits with Badshah Khan's Kitmagras. It, it, it fits with Gandhi's Satyagrahi. Like it, it's the same continuation of a vision of people who aren't naive about yeah. um, the um, actual impact of violence but are, are willing to actually give their lives to see oppression end. Yeah, and I think that's an important point to make before we move on is that, like, people don't seem to understand that nonviolent struggle is confrontational. That's right. It is disruptive. That's right. It is divisive. (laughs) You know, it hurts. Not, 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 not hurts. That's that wasn't the right word. It um it upsets people, right? Yeah. You know. And there are even casualties from it. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, One of my biggest pet peeves is when people, because I'll I'll see it in in my students all the time, will say, you know, we should respond peacefully. And they talk about (laughs) Dr. King was peaceful. I was like, that's the worst word to choose to try to describe what King and the freedom movement were trying to do was to be peaceful because they're imagining just standing out peacefully with a a, a sign or something. Right. Um, And not imagining confrontation and disruption and escalation Mm. and these ways in which we're actually confronting evil and clashing with it. Yep. Not peace, but a sword. He was the most hated man in America when he was killed. According to a poll, it was like literally a poll Yep. Where seventy five percent of of people who took the poll said, "Uh, we don't like that dude," <laughs> yep. you know. So, and th- that's what nonviolent struggle will get you. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, Andre. For me, um, I know that our friend Lisa has 
um, introduced us in spaces before, but in terms of my <laughs> personal story, um, uh, what it is for to, to grow up in a context uh, in a land that where my dad's a first generation, um, like he migrated in 72 um, to this land that we now refer to as Australia and all his generation um, of family were involved in armed rebellion against British imperialism. Yeah. And so to talk about nonviolence in my family um, is to say something ridiculous unless you back it up with your body. And yeah. um, that that is so lost on people who approach it as um, a, a purity game, or this is going to be a nicer, cleaner, less messy way to end oppression. Right. <laughs> and what I, I love um, what you do is, well, almost in the lit litany of who you, so you, um, you pulled out Chenoweth and um, her research. Um, uh, then you went, was it Gene Sharp next? And we could talk yeah. about his 198 uh, methods and additional <laughs> methods that people have added to um, yep. uh, since. But you also talked about who, and this is the first time where I was like, this dude isn't just an amazing musician. Like he, he's got game. Cause like, I, I mean, for nearly uh, 15 years, I've been teaching on Otpor and running workshops. Yeah. Your mates with like Popovich and you, you know, these people, like you, yeah. you have, you have phone numbers. Like you, I do. <laughs> would you, um, because for me, that was like, That's damn, Andre's got game. This is amazing. <laughs> Um, yeah, Serge, Serge, well, first off, you know, he put his email address in his book. Book too. at the back, which is he incredibly put, bold. Yeah, I, that was really bold of him. And I reached out to him years ago and was just like, yeah, you need to come to America and train some activists, <laughs> you know? Um, and that kind of started a mentoring relationship between he and I mm. and I had just been like searching. I mean, I started doing this when I watched Philando Castile bleed to death on Facebook Live in 2016, you know, wow. after being shot by the police. And I was just like, I, I have to do something. I have to invest my body in the struggle for Black freedom is what I said, you know, to myself. That's what wow. I decided. And so I started studying everything that I could this this professor at Fuller Seminary introduced me to social movement theory. Um, that's how I worked my way down the line from Thoreau to the present, you know, mm. uh, and was just reading, not re not just reading, but started reaching out to people who were living, you know. <laughs> um, so a lot of these names won't mean a whole lot to people if you're not if you're not reading that stuff. But I remember like. Who put me in touch with Bob Helvey? Jamila Rakib at the Albert yeah. Einstein Institution. Yeah, me, she's wonderful. Yeah, she put me in, in touch with um, Bob Helvey because he, you know, because of his work with coming up with something they call the strategic estimate. If if y'all haven't, I'm, I'm figuring most people haven't heard of this stuff. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to unpack things a little bit, but like, Basically, a strategic estimate is like the equivalent of what a conventional military does before they go into battle, right? They yeah. they create an appreciation of the situation. And I remember, you know, Bob and I emailed a bit, and I think that he just kind of lives off the grid in like West Virginia or something like that. And <laughs> I remember the first time, like, he was like, okay, friend, I'm going to go get martinis now. I don't email during martini time. And I'm just freaking out because Bob Helvey, who, I mean, no, it doesn't mean, his name doesn't mean a whole lot to others, but I mean, this dude helped plan like the people power movement in the That's Philippines, right. Yeah. right? You know, I just kept bugging these people, honestly, until, <laughs> until they realized I wasn't going to go away. Um, but I, I, I think that that also, you know, when we're talking about like what brings the scripture, I think my relationships with people like that has also been helpful too. Like, cause I think very practical, practically about this kind of stuff. And they've challenged me in a lot of ways, you know, as you might expect, you know, to think through just to ask questions about what we really mean when we're talking about pursuing social justice, liberation, freedom, or, or, you know, whatever kind of change we're looking for in the neighborhood. 
Yeah. Um, one of the things you mentioned about Mandela that you appreciated, and I'm sure um, you'll see the connection in terms of like Otpor generally as well, is humour um, and humour yeah. as a weapon. And we t often talk about um, uh, like weaponizing things in the negative, but I, I really mean in the positive. I, I mean, in yeah. the, the sword that heals kind of um, yeah. positive. Um, would you talk a, a little bit about, um, uh, I mean, whether you want to go there in terms of the Exodus narrative and the, the humor of a, a powerless people who realize a different kind of power, um, uh, but w w what it is to engage in that which laughs and exposes yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. And sorry, sorry if I derailed us by just talking about, like, I thought we might've been going somewhere else, but just the folks that I've, been able have been able to pour into my life in this area but yeah i think for sure the Atpour connection here okay so like serja and Atpour, they kind of coined this phrase about activism they call activism because they overthrew slobodan milosevic by starting out by just doing pranks you know yeah. and <laughs> they found that people were so um afraid of the dictator that using humor was a way that they could mobilize people and kind of break that fear that kept people from resisting uh, Slobodan Milosevic's rule. I think that like um, we talked about God, Yahweh in the text kind of acting like a community organizer in choosing a target and choosing tactics to put pressure on that target, making it expensive to, with, to uphold the oppression, escalating those tactics and all that kind of stuff. But um, the Exodus story is actually intended to be humorous, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Like, and I, and I pointed that out when I preached, when I preached from this passage of, uh, I think it's been a couple of years now um, that I, I preached from, from this passage at all saints church in Pasadena, but like, you know, yeah. Pharaoh commands all the Hebrew women to throw their baby in the Nile. And technically Moses mom does throw her baby in the Nile just with a flotation device, you know? Uh, <laughs> you know? Um, and these different things, like there actually, there actually is like, there's irony, there's irony in it, you know, that is supposed to be funny. So I don't think Sergio would appreciate this because, well, I don't know if he would, because he's an atheist, but uh, <laughs> I think God might've invented laptivism <laughs> before, <laughs> before I pour. <laughs> But it is a really powerful, powerful weapon. And it actually can be, that's actually, that actually can be a part of making oppression backfire, which we mentioned earlier. Um, and it can also be a really powerful tool in what they call dilemma actions, you know, because, you know, the civil rights activists were really skilled at this too, like putting your opponent in a position where they don't have any good choices to make, you know? So like, if you, right, like, okay, the lunch counter sit-ins, we can keep talking about that one, right? Like they, obviously they don't want they don't want black people to sit at the lunch counter that's one that's one thing that they don't want but then like they they the the planners of the of the birmingham campaign were so good because they they planned out this action so that um that the jails would be overwhelmed by making arrests so they they had timed how long it took to get from the 16th street baptist church to the restaurant and to the jail so they sent waves of activists in that timing so that when one group was arrested and on their way to jail there was another group on their way to the restaurant and when they bailed people out there was another group on their way to the jail so now they're in a dilemma because if they take if they take activists to the jail they're going to overwhelm the jail the jail system if they don't take activists to jail then they're letting these activists undermine the jim crow system and if they beat these these beat these activists up you know, uh, in front of the cameras, it's going to backfire on them because it's going to trigger public outrage. You know, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of humor in that one. I think I forgot that we were talking about laptivism. So let's talk about an opor action, but this is one of my favorite ones from opor uh, stories is um, the, the barrel. They took a barrel and they put Slobodan Milosevic's face on this barrel and they left a little sign next to this barrel with a baseball bat that said something like, you know, two cents to smash the dictator in the face and then all the organizers go and they're sitting at local coffee shops at the windows watching like they're not even there at the barrel next thing you know there's this line of 
kids and elderly folks and parents and stuff they're lined up in front of this thing to hit the barrel and i mean apparently it made like a really loud like it was really loud when people did this or whatever so they're all smashing the dictator in the face and the police show up and the police don't really know what to do because it's like well again like you don't want to arrest like a kid or an elderly person for hitting this barrel and it's actually not it's not against the law either so they end up they end up arresting the barrel (laughs) and taking the barrel away in their police car and these kinds of things are just they undermine they undermine the legitimacy of these um power holders who who really want to be taken so seriously yeah that's good that's good andre i remember reading that in blueprints uh for revolution and that's yeah they crack me up all those stories that he tells yeah. powerful. I think they open up imagination for ways that we can engage creatively, right? In our own time, in our own spaces. Um, I was curious if there were other ways. Um, I'm, I know we started off with the Exodus story. You touched on it a little bit. If there were other things that you see in there that kind of, um, that you're drawing from that you find um, kind of uh, inspire you, encourage you, keep you going as you struggle uh, against systems of oppression. I'm just curious, like, you know, as you sit with that text and like, what, what, what is it about that text that kind of has gripped you and, and why do you find it meaningful for you? You know, I think honestly, like I just, in 2016, I remember sitting down with someone I went to Bible college with and talking about this stuff. And I remember him looking me in the face and saying, racism just isn't a priority to God. Mm. And goodness. I remember like how uh, was this person white? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, guess. Know you, I don't know how you guessed that. <laughs> um, so I remember that and I remember like that sticking with me and me having to ponder it for a while. And for for I think it was a week or two later, I remember sitting on my couch and being like, but what if he's right though? Like considering the history. Yeah. You know, considering the history, I was like, what if what if Christianity is just, you know, an, an, a white invention to serve white people's interests? Right. And in that moment, this passage was one that it wasn't the exact passage, but the story of the Exodus hit me, you know, and it was the first time that I really saw, you know, that like sin is not just, I mean, I knew this, but I saw from scripture, right? It just came back to me that like, sin is not just personal. It's not just interpersonal, right? Like this is an example of systemic oppression in the Bible. And we see like in this passage, like not just this passage, but this story, God is so against this system of oppression that it doesn't even find it redeemable at all in any way. Like God is entirely abolitionist in this particular story. You know, this, this system cannot be reformed. It cannot be redeemed. There is no coming to the table between Hebrews and Egyptians. There is, there's no, there's none of that. It just, it has to go, you know? And um, that moment I, I rediscovered God in that moment as the God of the ghetto. I wrote a series about it, I think the year later, but I, I started I started thinking of God as the God of the ghetto because I felt like that story describes the Hebrews being ghettoized, right? They're kind of relegated to Goshen. They, have, they live in this kind of red line district of, of ancient Egypt. Um, and not only does God fight on their behalf, but God identifies with them, right? Like Hebrew basically meaning outsider, and Yahweh living in the desert, like in the margin of the margins. You know, I even, I, I wonder sometimes, like did the way that Yahweh is acting in this story is almost like Yahweh doesn't want to be found, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, chilling in the desert. So anyway, th- those are things that came to me in that moment. And this story was, was the thing at that time that helped me at least hold on to the idea of God in a liberating way. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. And even your question, right? I mean, it reminds me, I don't know if you're familiar with William R. Jones's, he's a philosopher who's, is God a white racist, right? I've seen that. Yeah. 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 And he doesn't really believe that God is white racist, but he wants to wrestle with 
the way that black theology claims the liberty of God. And can we take that assumption? Can we really start with that assumption? Right. Um, And I think that what you're drawing from is this tradition that from black readings, right. A scripture that, that say, no, this is a God that, that identifies with the oppressed, that sees the oppressed, that joins and is committed to their liberation. And I think that that's powerful. Um, But it's always with that question, right. That, on the other shoulder, right? Uh, is this God really for me? Is this God really for us? Um, is Does God care? Is God absent? Is God at work? Is God present in the midst of all that's going on all around us? And so I think yeah. um, these are real questions that I think even to today, I mean, I talk to folks and people are wrestling, right? Um, with um, who is God and where is God? Um, and is God really struggling for black people um, in the midst of anti-black violence and oppression. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm curious, maybe just switching a little bit. I know you've talked a little bit about um, your influences in terms of nonviolent social change and stuff, but, but I also know that you are a musician. Um, yeah. And, and I'm curious uh, to hear a little bit about maybe some of your influences in terms of who shapes your musical influences, um, are there particular artists that have really fed your soul? And so I just yeah. want to hear a little bit more about your music and and your process of developing that music. Yeah, thanks. Um, I have so many musical influences, but the biggest, the biggest few, I mean, Classic Soul is a huge one. Stevie Wonder was one of my favorite artists for a mm. long time. Um, but Bob Marley was probably the first. Bob Marley was the first one I was like, I realized that first off, it was like a career path. I was like in fourth grade and I realized Bob Marley got paid to write songs and stuff. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. Um, <laughs> and uh, to this day, like I wake up in the morning, I listen to Chant Down Babylon while I drink mm. some tea and read read Langston Hughes and stuff. Um, and, um, you know, that's a huge one. I grew up in Atlanta. So, I mean, all that r&b soul trap music is you know a part of my influences too and i try to blend those things together you know i try to blend yeah you know my uh, also my dad was a reggae musician so that was like you know my dad's from kingston and he's a reggae musician so i you know i try to blend those worlds of reggae music and atlanta urban music together and to also you know, bringing these lessons that I've learned on my journey of studying nonviolence into that, into that music too. That's good. Yeah, we we hear that, we feel that, and um, it's incredible. I, I really love sharing your stuff with others, and they're like, "Wow, it's it's all there." Um, Thanks. As, <laughs> as a vocalist as well, I mean, you're just incredibly gifted. So I appreciate that. Yeah, we're really thankful for for you being out there doing your thing. Andre, you're welcome back anytime. Um, as you can tell, this is kind of where, where Drew and I live in this stuff that um, you've been yeah. expressing and, and wrestling with. Um, so we'd love to have you back anytime. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse? 